As you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, or if you're using one right in front of you in that pew and you're opening it up to page 553, let me remind you we're in a series called Life Under the Sun, Ecclesiastes Under the Sun, and uh, we're in the third part of it, (laughs) and while you're opening it up, let me tell you a little bit of a, a tidbit of information. You may not have known about this, but half a century ago, for you who are challenged with that like I am, that's 50 years ago, God wrote a pop song. Did you know that? Reached number one on the charts, by the way. Pete Seeger, he's credited with the song. He called it Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, it was a music group, The Birds, that made it really, really famous. But the song, except for six words, is entirely the poem that we're going to look at in Ecclesiastes 3. Solomon wrote this poem. And he was preaching that life under the sun is under a curse. Now you have to actually connect this before you get into the poem. Because really what Solomon's going to do... He's going to take what he's been saying for two chapters, he's going to put it, put it to poetry, and then he's going to explain it in what's called prose. He's been telling us that life under the sun, it's under a curse. And the curse is that life by itself, when you do not connect it with God in a relationship through Jesus, it cannot bring satisfaction. So I'm going to take that a little bit in the other direction to very simply summarize that statement. If you want to live life without Jesus, then Solomon says you're going to live what we all are going to live, and that is life under the sun, a curse, and you're going to find no gain. You're going to find no satisfaction. Why? Because life is full of vanity, meaning that it's brief like a shadow, like a bubble that you blow with those little wands, like the vapor that you exhale exhale on a cold, chilly morning. Life is brief. Now, I want you to hear this because it's really going to set the metaphor. And it's mercilessly ticking like a clock toward the day that you and I will each die. Now, that's a cheery little poem. You want that on Hallmark, right? Somebody's in ICU, well, just... Say that statement to them, your clock's ticking to the point where you're going to die. Well, not very cheery. But you're going to find there's a lot of joy in this. You know, the Steve Miller band sang about it. I love this song. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. How many of you right now are reviewing that song in your head? How many of you have never heard it? You have no idea what I'm talking about, right? It's pretty much anybody that's 35 and younger. Isaac Watts, (laughs) this is for those who are... 88 and older, Isaac Watts acknowledged this life clock in his famous hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. That's one that has been being being sung in church for a long time. It has that little lyric that goes, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. That was a hymn, that is a hymn, that churches the world over still sing. Robbie Zacharias said, very, very insightfully, You can always add more pleasure, but you got to hear this, but you'll never be able to add more time. Now think about that. That's incredibly profound, very simple. You can add more pleasure, but you cannot add more time. 
The clock is ticking, and it's like an hourglass, and the sand is steadily dropping through that neck into the bottom part of that bowl. And for many of us, just be honest, and I'm with you, there's a whole lot more sand in the bottom half than there is in the top. And we know this because we all talk about it, right? We say things like, it feels like just yesterday that my 18-year-old who's graduating high school was a, a little girl. We say things like that, how time flies. There aren't enough hours in my day to get it all done. Time is constricting us. We say things like, time flies when you're having fun. Or we've all, if you're getting older, said, the older I get, the faster time goes by. By the way, cognitive, cognitive psychologists often give the reason for this. Very interesting, by the way. Why time feels like it picks up its pace when you get older, they say... That it's because as you get older, there are less and less first-time events in your life. What felt like an eternity between phone calls when you were dating, 20 years later you're celebrating your anniversary and it seems like it just went by. Time is a clock, it is steady as a metronome, it is ticking without regard toward the day of our life. It doesn't matter if you're 3, 12 50 or 80. That is true of you. It is true of me. So Solomon writes a poem about the ongoing march of time, and then he shows how to find a life worth living even while the clock is ticking. Here's the first part. You ready? Life is out of our control. We do not like that. But we're going to be forced to acknowledge it. The poem begins with Solomon saying, verse 1, this is chapter 3, verse 1, look at it with me if you would. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. The New American Standard translates it this way. There is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. So what's that word season even mean? Because I think you, you kind of have to start there with a bit of a, a definition. It means an appointed time. This is why New American Standard translated it that way. It's a appointed time where a certain activity takes place. It's so simple, I'm going to say it again. That's really what Solomon's saying. The seasons are appointed times where activities in the life under the sun take place. And he gives the opening line. We all have a start and a stop. He puts it this way. We're all going to be born and we all are going to die. And the rest of the poem describes, describes seasons of life in between them that we're all going to experience. So really, basically, here's the structure of the poem. He gives you the brackets, the boundaries. You're going to be born and one day you're going to die so now Solomon explains all the different seasons, all of the times that everybody, universally, we're going to experience in between birth and in between death. And so the rest of the poem is going to describe these seasons of life. We're all going to experience it. Maybe it's helpful for those who are a bit younger to look at it like this. Let me put a little bit of an analogy or a metaphor. It's, life is like Google Maps. Just think about it. You're going to be putting in your departure point, and then you log in or write in your destination, 
and then you've got all of these twists and turns, and you can stop along the way, and this is what life really is. You start at your departure point with birth. You're going to get to your destination in death, but we each, listen, your life, my life, they're all different. We all have different turns. We all have different twists. There's going to be times of rerouting where you lose your job, you got to start your career over, or you start at one college and transfer to another one. There's all kinds of rerouting experiences, and you're going to make stops like I have, like we all continue to do, at moral places, at immoral places, good places, places that aren't so good. This is life. But life is a journey of seasons, friend. You cannot control it. Half of which you're going to prefer not to experience. Literally half of the 14 couplets in this poem you don't want in your life, yet you're going to have. So we're going to skim through them, all 14 of them, and we're going to notice that they're presented as opposites. So look at verse 2 with me. There's a season of planting. You know, you go to college, you get career training. But there are also times where you need to uproot things from our lives, like relationships, like certain habits. Verse 3, there are times to kill that you have to execute serial murderers or they're just going to keep going. And then there's times of healing where you've got to forgive and you've got to restore somebody who's hurt you. Still in that verse, it's exciting to build, but sooner or later, everything's going to be torn down. Everything is going to be replaced. Verse 4, there's going to be times of sadness, seasons of celebration as well. We're going to grieve at funerals. We're going to dance at weddings. Verse 5, there's going to be times when we throw stones on our enemies' fields, which is what that means, really. It means that was one of the ways that they destroyed the ability of an enemy to rise up and, and uh, gain their strength and independence. You just take stones, you put them out in their fields, or crops can't grow. So there's times where you've got to really put the enemies out of your life. And then there's times when we take the stones of the enemy out of our lives. You can't let them have that power over you. There's a time to embrace verse 5 and welcome a new relationship. And then there's a time to say goodbye to a painful one. Verse 6, there's times to look for answers. And then there's other times when the answers don't come, you got to give up. Or you're going to live a life of misery and frustration. Still in verse 6, there's times where we gather things in our lives. There's times... When we get rid of them, this is the biblical reason we have yard sales. Verse 7, that was really not as funny as I thought. Verse 7, there are times of ripping our clothes in grief. And then there's times to put your life back together. you got to move on. You can't stay in grief. Still in verse 7, there's times when we should say nothing to somebody. Say nothing to that person. You don't need to confront them right now. But then there's going to be a time where you do need to speak up. And you are going to need to confront. In verse 8, there are times to hate evil and love good. There's times to fight against evil. There's times to hold on to your peace. Now listen, I could have spent weeks probably, I think you could have as well, just nuancing different examples of each one of them. I don't think you can exhaustively treat these verses. They're as wide as life. 
But what Solomon is saying, this is life under heaven, which is a little bit different way of saying under the sun. And it's full of unexpected twists. It's full of turns for all of us. You never thought, by the way, that you would be discussing divorce, divorce with a lawyer when you were walking down the aisle on your wedding day. Well, that's a twist. You never dreamed of raising a prodigal child on the day that you gave birth and held that baby. Stephen and Amy Graham from three weeks ago, they didn't know on their wedding day that in 15 days after that, they're going to both die in a rollover truck crash in Washington State. Never saw that coming. A friend of mine did not know the morning he started a motorcycle trip in the Virginia mountains that he was going to have a, a horrific motorcycle accident, end up in therapy for months. You cannot control life. So it's no wonder that Solomon ended with a question in verse 9. This is how he ends his poem of all of these opposites, 14 couplets. What gain has the worker from his toil? Alistair Begg put it this way. There's 14 pluses in this poem. There's 14 minuses. And they all add up to zero. What do you gain? There's nothing. Every birth is going to end in death. Peace today is going to meet war tomorrow. You're going to get your kitchen clean tonight. And then tomorrow it's going to be piled with dishes again. You're going to celebrate completing a work project. And the very next day, the next project is laid at your desk. What gain is there for all of our effort? The Vogue's music group in 1965 had a hit song called five o'clock world that went like this up every morning just to keep a job i gotta fight my way through the hustling mob sounds of the city pounding in my brain while another day goes down the drain that's pretty much the point of the poem life is not within our power to control and for many of us, listen, I, I said us very personally, very purposefully. For many of us, the fact that you cannot control your life is extremely difficult to reconcile. You know, there's some that want to control life. You know this. They cannot find a way to do it. So they measure out control by abusing their bodies with drugs. You know the root of that is for control. It's what addictions are. They cut their arms and their legs with razor blades and hide them from their parents. That's all at the root of it. That's control. They're starving their bodies in anorexia or they're binging and purging and bulimia. They're obsessing endlessly in compulsions like Bob Wiley and what about Bob? I mean, listen, all of these are efforts to find some semblance of control in your life because you're living in an out-of-control world. Well, if I'm going to be in an out-of-control world, at least I can control this, but it's going to destroy you in the process. There's others that go a little bit different route. They try to gain control by dominating and abusing others, often children. As the horrific Allentown Diocese abuse reports just a month or so ago reveals. Some discover they cannot control life, so they live on the brink of despair. Pink Floyd, their hit song, mega hit song, Time. 
Here's the lyrics. You are young and life is long and there is, a, there is time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Every year is getting shorter, never seem to find the time. Well, they, they captured that pretty well. But that's where a lot of people end when they realize they can't control this life. And then there's even worse. Some just give up and they end their lives like Brad Delp, one of my favorite bands, Boston, who died, killed himself, and pinned a note to his shirt with the message, I am a lonely soul. Friends, the reality is that we cannot control life, and C.S. Lewis said it well. It doesn't really matter if you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Did he not get that right? Now, I hope you hear me, because right now you're teetering on the edge of depression. <laughs> Solomon's not going to let you land there. I'm not either. He's not going to let you end up in despair, abuse, or suicide. Instead, he's going to show you how to live your life with value, even in a life you cannot control. Point number two. How can we live life? How can we live in an out-of-control world and find joy and peace? Now here, actually, that, everything I just told you, basically, is just contextual introduction. This is what we've got to know. You ready? He's going to use that spiraling technique. Remember, I told you about this. This is really what marks Ecclesiastes apart. What makes it so interestingly difficult to understand, by the way, it uses a spiraling technique where Solomon will say something in one chapter, and then he's going to come back to it. He's going to spiral, but this is a spiral that goes down deeper. So when he gets back to it, he's going to go to a deeper level. And he had just closed chapter 2. You want to glance at that really quickly? He just closed chapter 2. He told you how to find pleasure in pleasure. It's a gift from God. God enables you to enjoy it. He enables you to enjoy work. If you want to find joy in your work, gasp, it is possible for the Christian only. Because God will redeem it for you. He will reveal himself in it. He will give you opportunities to bring glory to him. He will ideally suit you for it. And you will feel alive, even in the midst of frustrations. That's how God redeems work. He's spiraling back. And I'm going to give you three ways, Solomon is actually, to be able to live in an out-of-control world and find our joy and peace. Here's the first. This is absolutely mega huge. Too many Christians do not do this. They're not here. They're suffering. This is the number one thing I tell people as a pastor. Know that God is perfectly sovereign over every part of your life. Now, some of you have all kinds of arguments that are conjured up at this split second that I read that. And for some of you, there is an unease. Because you don't want a God that's in control of every single part of your life. You really enjoy free will. Solomon says, verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Now, if you go back to the poem and see all of the dozens of times time is mentioned, the word time is mentioned, now you know Solomon's connecting. God has made everything beautiful in its season, in its time. But the word beautiful is really not as you're thinking of me, you know, handsome and debonair and beautiful. Wow, no amens? That's a little painful. That's really not the best translation here. The better translation is appropriate. The word beautiful means appropriate. So God has made everything appropriate in its time. So he takes all of these times, all of those seasons from Solomon's poem. Now listen, and he fits them into your life like puzzle pieces. And it makes up the mosaic, the picture of your life. God has a plan. He has a season. Every time that you ever experience, God ordains to fit into his plan for you. And I really genuinely feel terribly bad for Christians who do not view God as sovereign over all of life. I've never met a Christian that doesn't think God is sovereign over some of life. But I've met a lot of Christians in our church that believe that there are parts of your life that God just doesn't have jurisdiction over. And I genuinely feel feel terrible for them because it paves the way for anxiety, for complaining, for depression, for doubt and despair. The very moment that my life began to truly understand the sovereignty of God, anxiety lost its hold in my life. It was a process, but to the degree that I believed and that I affirmed God's sovereignty over every element of my life, to that degree I was able to trust God, had peace in my life, and to the degree of that, the lessening of anxiety and despair happened in me. It's glorious. It's a comforting truth that while we are bound within seasons and times, we're locked into them. You cannot escape them. Pink Floyd knew that. They sang about it. Well, God is not bound within time. He's not bound within seasons. We, can see the, we cannot see the end of the season, but God can because he's already there. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. You know that annoying co-worker? Their face just popped up in your mind. Do you know that God made that person have that job for a purpose? And likely that purpose is caught up and bound within your own seasons and times. We really don't know why our children get seriously sick. We don't understand why financial struggles come. We don't understand why the door of opportunity keeps closing, why tragedy visits our home. But that is the rub. God isn't interested in telling us why. He's wanting to enable us to trust. Poor Job. He never knew what hit him. And he asked God, God, why? Poor Elijah, so depressed that he laid down under a broom tree and he said, God, I'm done with life. Take it. I don't want to even live anymore. And he finds his way in the strength of the Lord, 80 miles across a wilderness desert, into a cave. And all he has to say to God is, God, basically, why? Why is this happening? 
Jeremiah so faithful for so long, yet so lonely, and no friends. And he just wanted to know, God, why am I suffering all of these years? And you know what? God did not give the reason why to any of them. None. No, I know for a fact, because I know a lot of you, I know there's some of you that have struggled with the why question for years, and you cannot find reconciliation with God. Can I just gently tell you, I don't think he's going to give it to you. I don't think he's going to tell you. Because it's not going to solve anything. It really won't. I know you think that it'll snap all of the seasons and times, those painful ones, into reality, and now you'll understand it and everything will start to get right. Listen, it won't. And that's not the objective. God has a better purpose. Can you trust him? Can you trust him even when you don't see the reason for the season and the why for the time? Well, he's going to do for you and I what he taught Solomon in its letter B. Trust in what you know, but you cannot understand. Trust in what you know, but you cannot understand. Verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I'm just going to change a little bit to make it flow a little bit better. God has put eternity into man's heart, but you cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We're all designed with echoes of glory. Every single person. Christian and and non-Christian. And every single person, Christian and non-Christian, you're going to find that you're really truly unable to be satisfied by the world's pleasures. C.S. Lewis again said this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. These, these aroused pleasures within us are pointing to God, who holds true pleasure in his hands. So there's an imprint of eternity in every single one of us, yet while we have the sense that there's something greater than us, it is that greater than us that frustrates us. We've got limited access to the big picture. It's just out of reach. And it provokes this idea within us that if we just know why things are happening, we'd be okay. The problem is the life above the sun where Lewis's real thing is available can only be gained one way. It's by faith. You see, let me tell you something, and I'm telling you this from experience. The demand to God for the answer to our why question is to get around faith. It is to get around the demands that we've got to trust. We don't want to trust, so just tell us why. And God will not pander to our demands. You know, I downloaded a free book from an author this past week, and it required me to download an app called Book Funnel to to receive it. It was a free book. The book was mine to have. It was there. All I had to do was click on it, but I wouldn't be able to get it until I put onto my smartphone the Book Funnel app. 
in a spiritual sense, the necessary app is called faith. And without that app, you can really, you just cannot gain access to the life that is above what's under the sun. You cannot gain access, access to what is above this world, what is waiting there for you that God wants to give to you. You're not going to get it without faith. So Solomon is arguing you've got to trust in your sovereign God. But then he's going to say something that actually speaks so diametrically opposite to so much of what the church says today. He's going to say, listen, enjoy your life now. Enjoy it. Verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Well, you know, the atheist will tell you there is no such thing as a God, so eat, drink, and be merry. Well, Solomon almost said the exact same thing. Eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because this is God's gift to you. Now, some of you, honestly, let's just be straight up honest. You just like Eeyores. I'm not even meaning that funny. You have no joy. That is so opposite of what you should be experiencing. Well, Pastor Tim, you don't understand my struggles. You don't understand the depth of my suffering. I, I do, actually. This is what I do. I've been doing this for 25, 26 years, living in the depths with people's struggles. And I've watched people whose children have died, who are full of joy. Why? Because they've realized that God is sovereign. God appoints even that horrible event, even that terrible time that no parent ever wants... But even God was behind that, and he is perfectly good. And I can access the power of that through faith and trust that there's a world above that I cannot see fully, I cannot understand, but it fills out the picture of my life. And God, I'm going to trust that you're there because it's under heaven, the throne room of God, and that you're overseeing it all. And if you allowed this to come to my life, as horrible as it was, as terribly painful as it is, still I'm going to have joy because I've got a God that is over all. Did you know that tomorrow the Jewish people begin their Sukkot festival, festival of booths? It's their most joyful festival of their year. And did you know that every year during the festival of booths, their Sukkot festival, they read the book of Ecclesiastes? Do you know why they do that? Because they consider it to be one of the most joyful books in the Bible. Have you ever considered Ecclesiastes in that way? They know what many of us have never learned. God wants us to be happy and live out the happiness by doing good to others. C.S. Lewis again said it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. That doesn't sound like the Christian upbringing teaching that you got, does it? But it's the truth. Trusting that every season and every point in time in our lives is part of God's perfect, sovereign plan. It allows us to relinquish control, let go of anxiety, to live life well in the moment. 
Christian, we live life under the sun. There are seasons of good and bad, easy, and difficult. You know, actually, one of the most insightful things that happened in my life that I think needs to happen in every Christian's life is for me to gain an expectation. You know what? Bad things are just going to happen. That's normal. Because there's this subliminal, unconscious idea in the Christian that if I'm really walking with God, if I'm in his word, and I'm really enjoying prayer with him, all my day is going to be sanctified. It's all going to be blessed, and it's going to go really well. And then when something bad happens, it absolutely knocks my faith on its backside. Well, listen, when I began to learn that good things and bad things are going to happen, why? Because we live under the sun, and there's appointed seasons and times. They have really good stuff, 14 examples, and then really bad stuff, 14 examples. And they're all coming to my life. And they're all coming to yours as well. But every one of them is part of God's plan for you, and it cannot be thwarted, and it cannot be changed. And did you ever consider that complaining about your life is truly, at its most deep level, complaining about your God? It really is truly what's happening. Every complaint that you ever utter about your life is really a complaint about your God. Solomon says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. The happiest life you can ever have, Christian is to be full of the fear of God. And that sounds really odd. It almost grates on us because we don't understand what the fear of God is. Paul explains the connection really well, 1 Corinthians, whether you then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's really the quintessential beauty about fearing God is that you want so badly and every part of you, it just resonates with the desire of God be glorified in what I'm doing. Be glorified in me, your child. Be glorified in my thinking and in my emotions, in my choices. Listen, if you're really learning to fear God, then the glory of God is absolutely an insatiable, an insatiable desire for you. To fear God is to be so in awe of him that our highest desire is to live in such a way that he is shown to be the perfect God that he really is. I am so close to being done. So let me, let me grab your attention. I really don't want you to tune out. This is really important. Christian, we know that life under the sun is out of our control. Uh, let, me, let me be really a little more accurate with that. If you're really young, you know, six, seven, eight years old and younger, you may not really quite know this yet. You just get frustrated. I did too. If you're in your teens, you're, you're getting this. You're starting to, it's starting to dawn on you, man. I can't get that girl to like me. I'm, I can't get on the starting squad. If you're in your 20s and your eyes are all full of the dream and your career, you actually get, begin to forget it again. And then all of a sudden, it starts to crushingly be reminded to your life. You cannot control life. And when you get your 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, you're thoroughly, thoroughly convinced there is nothing, nothing 
that I can control. Not when it comes to seasons and times. They're coming whether I want them to or not. So we know that life under the sun is out of our control, but it doesn't need to rob us of joy and peace. The very last word of the poem is peace. We can find gain here. Satisfaction and happiness is what the word means. Knowing how, knowing that God is perfectly sovereign over every season and time in your life. And we can trust in what we know to be true, but even, even though you will never fully understand it, we see through a glass darkly. And I'm going to give you a little bit of an insight that you may not want to know, but I don't even think all of our why questions are going to be answered in eternity. You know why? Because I don't think we're going to care anymore. I don't think we're going to care anymore. I don't think any of us are going to be up there Sitting down with Jesus going, Jesus, why on earth did you allow that to happen to me? I think that's the last thing you're going to care about. You're going to be so enthralled with what he has prepared for you. That your eyes only look forward. You can trust in what you know to be true even if you can't fully understand. And you can enjoy life here now. How? By loving God and doing good in this life. Let your life be filled with a desire. God, be glorified today in me. Let me care about your glory more than mine. Let me fear you, worship you. Let you be awesome to me, so awesome that you're greater than anything else that might come as competition. It'll drown it out. It'll wean it out of my life. I'll delight myself in you, and then you will give me the desires of my heart. That's what it means to fear God. And desire his glory. So what season are you in? I bet some of you are in some pretty tough ones. And you're struggling. Solomon just told you how to endure. And more than endure, how to live life to the full now. God is sovereign. Trust him and enjoy life. Amen.